Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome along to this week's Writer's Routine, where we're chatting to Amanda Prowse. She has written over 30 books... The new one is All Good Things. We talk about how she never plans, but instead just knows what the characters are up to and have always been up to. Also, you can hear how she researches some of the traumatic things that she writes about. And we discuss how the things that people told her about writing turned out not to be true. And when I heard how difficult it was or torturous or how they struggled, I thought, gosh... I'm finding this very easy, which means I'm either doing it right or I'm doing it wrong. And I didn't know which, because you don't know until your book, you know, sees the light of day. Um, But I found it made me so happy that I remember thinking, if I could just do this every day, just get up, go downstairs in my PJs, sit in a chair and tip tap away, I think I could die really happy. And I remember thinking that, that I'd found the one thing that brought me just unbridled joy. There is more on the way with Amanda Prowse in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. This is Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day and life. We see how they plan every part of themselves and their space uh, and their family around trying to get an idea down on the page. My name is Dan. Thank you for listening. Now, here's a question. Are you a plotter or are you like my guest this week? You're about to discover one of the biggest pantsers around. Do you meticulously plot? Do you outline? Do you know exactly where your story is going? Or do you make it up as you go? Do you fly by the seat of your pants? Somehow, is it all just there? Well, if you're a pantser, if that's you, this might help, even though you don't want to be a proper plotter. I know that. But sometimes it's just good to have a vague idea of what might be happening and something to help you. Well, this week we are sponsored by the writing software Plotter. And even though it's called Plotter, it can help you if you're a pantser too. It's got all the tools on there to assist taking the few ideas that you have and just fleshing them out a bit. It's like having a notebook with you on your computer all of the time. It's always there. You can make notes of what you do know. You can colour code everything. You can use the tag so you can switch, you can swap, you can move it around. If you think your story is going in this direction, but it turns out it's not because you're pantsing it, you can really easily 
move stuff back and change stuff with what this software gives you. There's even proven plot templates on there from some of the best writers around which can give you a nudge and an idea on what can happen next. If you find yourself stuck, it's just got some ideas to say, maybe this is where you want to go. In the simplest way, Plotter helps you figure things out. He does the back end of your writing, so all you need to do is concentrate on what you love, which is getting words down on the page. Now, the best way for you to see what it does is to get to go.plotter.com slash routine and take a look around. And while you're there, brilliant news, you can get 10% off the software with this show. Make the most of it because um, they won't be available for you in a few weeks. So do take advantage of that while you can. 10% off Plotter over at go.plotter.com slash routine. Let's get into this week's show then with Amanda Prowse. Amanda has written more than 30 books, fiction and novellas and short stories and non-fiction and memoir. Her novel A Mother's Story won Sainsbury's ebook of the year a little while ago. And uh, it's amazing. She wrote a memoir with her son about his experiences in depression. There's so many different stories that Amanda has told and we talk through that. Amanda is incredibly open about trying to move through traumatic events with storytelling and creativity and how much that can help. Her new novel is All Good Things. It's about the lifelong neighbours, the Kellaways and the Harrops who couldn't be further apart. And when they celebrate a big anniversary, huge secrets are revealed and everything changes. Did the serious voice there. We talk about why, very simply, Amanda finds writing easy. Sometimes that's quite tough to hear, right? But it, some, yeah, it happens for some of us. thing is, it's the other part of Amanda's life that she finds tricky. Also, we talk through why she never plans, but instead has almost created the Amanda Prowls character universe in her head. She plucks people out and says, right, I'm writing about you this week. Also hear how much she's learned about other characters, the ones that return over the last 30 books. And because she doesn't plot, you can hear at what point she realises that things need to happen There's a lot going on and a lot to pick through and take away in this week's chat with Amanda Prowse. And we kick things off, as we always do, running through what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. In the place I sit down to write, I am in a library. I've got a big comfy chair with a wide window, uh, always a cup of coffee to hand, obviously. Usually a couple of dogs on my lap or one on the shoulder, as she's liking recently. A couple of chickens might wander in, uh, continual interruptions from uh, boys, uh, my sons looking for pants, toast and pizzas, not necessarily in that order. Um, I've got piles of books everywhere, a large TBR, lamplight, always a smelly candle, obviously, uh, just to get those little creative juices flowing. And I'm usually in my pyjamas. I'm a slatten. What can I say? I tell you what uh, spoke to me there, what instantly jumped out of that was you called it a library. Now, very few authors will say it's their library. So I'm thinking it's grand. I'm thinking it's stately. How right am I? You are wrong. Sorry. I'm sorry, Dan. You're thinking smoking jacket and peeled grapes, aren't you? Yeah, just a bit. Yeah, you're thinking chaise long, Barbara Cartland style. No. What it is, is I have always had, you know, libraries are my happy place. They are my haven. They're where I meet people like me. It's where I find my tribe and it's where I feel most at home. So I was determined when we finally were able to to buy a house of our own, um, that I was going to have the main room in the house was going to be my library. So no TV, two big sofas, the walls lined with bookshelves and crammed with books ranging from Harry Potter, Jackie Collins, Shakespeare, 
you know, Marlowe, everything in between, all the things I want to read and read. And some things I think I should have there so that when people see them, they think I'm smarter than I am, obviously. Um, so essentially, most people have a sitting room or a lounge or a den, but I have a library and I just, oh, Dan, I love it. How have your family taken that? As you say, most people, the design of their house is centred around the living room. Yours is not. How, how does the family feel? Maybe it's been quite inspirational for the kids. Well, do you know, it's funny. I think um, it was always just this is what we're going to do. So, I mean, they watch TV on their laptops, as, as lots of young people do, and myself included. So I think not having a TV isn't the, isn't the worst thing in the world. But also, it's really strange. We tend to congregate there because it's where I work and it's where I sit of an evening. So they'll come in and sit with me and we'll chat. And because there's no TV on and no distraction, I find we're having really good chats and sort of getting to know each other a bit better. And it feels very grown up having a cuppa sat there, you know, sort of chatting amongst the books. I rather like it. Now, that's interesting as well, because there's no segregation between work time and family space. Where you're working is where you do everything else. How do you find that impacts, I guess, your your, your state of mind if there's no distinguishing between the, the simply the sense of place and what you're there to do? Okay, Dan, my husband's told you to say that, hasn't he? He's clearly <laughs> been on the phone and said, just have a word. Because, yeah, you're quite right. Um, I, uh, I write all day, every day. I write weekends. I write evenings. Some people say to me, they send me a little text and say, have a lovely weekend. And I think, what's that? Oh, weekend. Oh, it must be Saturday. The only way I know what day of the week it is is because it's when I put the bins out. Wednesday, incidentally. So tomorrow. Thank you for reminding me. Um, but literally, my, my days have no distinction. My night and day has no distinction. I sit with a lamp and I write. Um, and in some ways, it's great because if I feel a creative need or there's something bubbling inside me to get out, I can just do that. I can just go there and work. But also, I've realized that um, I'm kind of not very sociable because I don't keep normal hours, if that makes sense. And actually, I don't ever have a break from what I do. Luckily, I love what I do. And I've always said, if I'd never sold another book, I would still write all day, every day, because I love it. It's my therapy. It's my safe place. It's my haven. But um, I think it makes me a bit boring, if I'm being honest. I, I you know I see people's Instagrams. I see these great lives. They're drinking cocktails in bars. They're dancing. You know, they're out on countryside. They're bouldering. What even is bouldering? Don't know. Don't care. Don't do outside much. But, you know, they have these amazing experiences. And I'm just sat there literally tip tapping away on my tiny laptop. Well, that's fine. That's what Instagram's for. It's for you to live through other people. So as long as you've got it, you can feel like you're living that life. I think that's perfectly okay. What's interesting as well is that you say uh, you love it and you are prolific, over 30 books. And well, that's not even including short novels, nonfiction, novellas and all of that. If you're doing it all the time, all day, every day, how much of a challenge can that be? I speak to a lot of authors and they feel the struggle. They sit there and they don't know what's happening. Yet for you, I imagine it's such a compulsion now. You're so in the cycle that I don't imagine that happens much. No, I, I find it very easy. I don't think about it. I just literally start working. Um, I've never had to struggle to think of an idea. My books come into my head very, very quickly in about 30 seconds, fully formed, beginning, middle, end, twist, turns, everything. Like someone has downloaded a story into my head. I see it like a film and I literally open up the laptop. I'm demonstrating it now, which is really good for a podcast where people can't see me, but I'm moving my fingers. You know, think of Dawn French, you know, tip tapping on the, I'm doing that. Um, and I just write what I see above my head and, and that's how I work. I find it 
yeah, very easy. Um, and I know that might be a bit galling for people who do struggle, but I find every other aspect of life hard. It's the one thing I do find easy. Um, I find, you know, making sure we've got enough bread and milk and, you know, have I remembered to wash my hair and has everyone been fed um, and worry about, you know, all the other issues going on in the world. I find that stuff difficult. But writing, I find incredibly easy and I have more books in my head than I could write in my lifetime. So I think I'm lucky. I know that you came to being a published author and a successful published author fairly late, although that's probably um, uh, kind of more weighted than it is because like, what is time nowadays, especially in, in, in the publishing game? Has that always been the case? Have you always had this compulsion to write? Or when you were kind of in, in the middle of your life, I think is what they say, and you started to be published, published and started to be quite successful, is that when it hit, when you realised that you could make money doing this? I'd never written before. I'd never tried to write, but I'd always been a compulsive reader. I mean, books from when I was very young have been my haven, my friends, my educators, my everything. I love nothing more than a library and library folk. You know, I've never not gone into a library and had a great conversation or managed to find something that makes my heart race with anticipation. And that's been the case since I was seven, my first visit to a library, which I remember very, very clearly. Even now, it just shaped me and it changed me. Um, And I didn't think I could write because I didn't think I had anything to write about. And I thought writing books was for people who had a spare bedroom or people who had stair carpet or people who'd been to a great school or went to Mallorca on their holidays. And I did none of those things. You know, I was just a very ordinary girl. I grew up in a house without any books. We had uh, a Littlewoods catalogue and a car manual for my dad so he could fix his Corsair on the drive. We didn't have any books. And the idea of writing a book, that was so lofty, that was so out of my lane, that it wasn't going to be possible for a girl like me, a woman like me. So I just carried on plodding on. I've done every job you could think of, Dan, and I was rubbish at all of them. But I had this idea in my head that maybe I could do it. And when life got bleak or difficult, when I was skint or tired or fed up or hating a job I was doing, you know, working in a call centre or whatever, the idea of sitting down and writing that book was my happy place. It's where I went. And it was almost like a, an escape tunnel from the mundanity of everything I was going through. And then when I was in my mid 40s, I got sick and I thought, you know what, this is my one time round the block. And it was a real reminder it was a kick up the bum that I needed. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a go. Every book I'd ever read, I'd always thought, I wish I'd written that. And for me, it was people like Catherine Cookson, Colleen McCulloch, uh, Maeve Binchy, you know, other classic sort of fiction writers who I just, you know, adore and still do. And I would devour all their work. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try it. And I did. And, and I, I couldn't have planned. I couldn't have really thought about my career or how it was going to pan out. But because I found it so easy, it sort of gave me confidence to try. But it was also very scary because I'd been talking about it for so long that I thought, gosh, this is now really, you know, the proof of the pudding. I'm doing it. I'm exposing myself and I'm going to have to show someone my work, which, you know, for someone like me, whose confidence is and was very low, it was a, it was a really big deal. How instantly did you realise oh, this is what I'm here to do? Funnily enough, that's a great question, actually. Funny enough, I think while I was writing, I started to look at other people's writing processes. And when I heard how difficult it was or torturous or how they struggled, I thought, gosh, 
I'm finding this very easy, which means I'm either doing it right or I'm doing it wrong. And I didn't know which because you don't know until your book, you know, sees the light of day. Um, But I found it made me so happy that I remember thinking if I could just do this every day, just get up, go downstairs in my PJs, sit in a chair and tip tap away. I think I could die really happy. And I remember thinking that, that I'd found the one thing that brought me just unbridled joy without pressure, you know, without uh, judgment. It was just me and the keyboard. And I still feel like that. I still feel just absolutely at peace when I'm doing it. Let me plonk you back in your library then. Uh, You've described the books that are all around you, the dogs, the kids. What... Is there anything around you that's that's more practical for the story that you are writing? I mean, uh, plot points, post-it notes, a spreadsheet. What have you got going on in that department? No, nothing. I never do a spreadsheet. I never make a plan. I never write a plot. I never do anything on a post-it note. Everything is just in my head. So I see my, my story comes in, as I say, like a movie, and I see it every detail. You know, what the flowers smell like, what she's drinking, what colour her dress is, who she talks to, how she feels, where she goes next, her night's sleep, the bed she's in, the room, where she's going on her holiday, what she's thinking. And so I just write exactly what I see. And my my stories are quite cinematic. They're quite descriptive um, because I literally just, as I say, it's like if I said to you, um, okay, you and I are going to write the scene from Dirty Dancing where he lifts her above her head and they're in the water. And we'd go, oh, gosh, yes, there's droplets falling and the sun is shining. But it's exactly that. I don't think about it. I don't plot. I don't plan. I don't write anything down. I don't have a single notebook with anything in it. It's all in my head. All my books are still in my head. And the way I'm, I, I do it is that I create an entire world and everyone I've ever written about and everyone I ever will write about in the future lives in that world. So because I've known my characters since the day they were born, and their family and where they live and where they've moved and the horrible things that happened to them at school and the great relationships they've had. I'm just picking out a section of their lives to write, to, write, you know, to write about. So for example, in my book, Waiting to Begin, it's a story of Bess, who's 53. I'm writing about Bess at 53, but I could tell you what her birth was like. I could tell you where she went on her first holiday. I could tell you what she likes in food, what she dislikes, her allergies, because she's a real person in my head. And I know everything about all of them. And they chat sometimes. They're all together in like this world. It's like I'm. It's like I watch a, you know, like like I'm watching a series, or I'm seeing this. Uh, this it's like I'm a Sims. I go, you know, the game Sims when you create that world. I think it is. Um, it's like that. But all my characters are, are in my books. Has that always been the case? Is is, is that something that you needed? That I just I'm. That that's so rare for everything to have such clarity that I wonder how you've got to that point, even when you were writing that that first novel that you were talking about with no knowledge that it might get published. You were writing it because nothing else seemed to go to plan. Was there any form of thought as to, to, to how to get to know these characters further and perhaps subconsciously that's just become the way? No, it's literally like if I said to you, do you have siblings, Dan? No, just me. Okay. So do you, do you have a best friend? Yeah. Okay. So I might say to you, write a story of your best friend. Tell me one day in his or her life on holiday. And you would have to write that one day. And you write that one day with the full knowledge of how they grew up, where they lived, their relationship with their parents, 
you know, the house they live in, whether they like doing laundry, their habits, their quirks, their voice, their accent. You'd have all that knowledge in the back of your mind whilst you're writing that one day about someone you know very well. And that's what it's like for me. I mean, I, I, I'm definitely autistic. I know that. Um, and I think that's it's definitely part of it for me. It's an intense understanding of this world and everything and everyone in it. And when I wrote my first book, it felt called Poppy Day, which is a story of a young girl whose husband gets taken hostage in Afghanistan and what she does to bring him home. It felt so bizarre to me that I wasn't explaining more about her gran, who was kind of a peripheral character, that I then had to go and write a prequel explaining all about her gran's life called Clover's Child. And then I thought, gosh, it feels really bad to just leave them there. So I'll write the sequel, which is a book called um, Will You Remember Me? about what happens to both of their life later. And then there are touch points in other books. What have I done? Where these characters pop up because, you know what, it's quite a small world in my head. And so there are touch points. So someone in one book may go on a holiday, say, to Western Supermare. And then I may have a character living close who goes to Western Supermare and they pass them on the prom because that's what happens in real life. So for me, it's very straightforward, very easy. And I, I never think about it. You don't think about it, but... Uh, how much have you learnt, have you figured out how to deal with the fact that you can't tell the entirety of one character's life in one story and that you might need to put things on the back burner you know you've written over 30 books now how 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 much have you kind of figured out what's happening and where one character might pop up again that's a really good question and what i tend to do is i tend to think about an event, a happening, something that shaped them in a particular way that made them the way they are. And I write that part of their story. And it always, when I think of it, when I think, oh, yes, I'll do that for Poppy, for Catherine, for Kate, for Rosie, for whoever, I always think of just that piece of the story. So, for example, um, in To Love and Be Loved, it's the story of someone who falls deeply in love and gets left at the altar. That's not a spoiler. That's, you know, that's quite well known. And it's just that point in her life. And so I don't need to go back to, although I do touch on elements of her childhood and what happens next, but really that's that's what I'm telling you about, what that felt like for her, what it felt like for her family and how it shaped her forevermore because it was such a huge and significant thing. So I set myself almost a parameter, a boundary. Um, and I often think, you know, if ever I didn't want to write new ideas, which I, which I do, I could always go back and write prequels and sequels because... My characters carry on. They're doing some amazing things. And there's some really lovely um, outcomes and eventualities where I've left them. And I now know what's happened to them next. I think, oh, people would love to know that. I'm so happy for them. Maybe I should write that. So maybe I might go back and revisit all these books at some point and write, you know, prequels and sequels. I don't know. I might. I don't know. So I get up very early. I wake up very early, about five, half five, and I'm always downstairs by about quarter to six, six o'clock. And coffee, if I could have it intravenously, Dan, I would. I am a total addict. I don't drink and I don't smoke. I swear a lot and I drink a lot of coffee. They're my two kind of two faults. I'm sure I have many more, but that's two we'll focus on. Um, so coffee is my lifeblood and I can't really focus until I've had at least two. Um, I then take the dogs up to the paddock, all weathers. We go for a little walk, bimble around the field, usually in my PJs and wellies, no makeup, hair like a bird's nest. Don't care. Don't see anyone. Um, come back in. I'm usually a little bit chilly and I'll put a big blanket around my shoulders and I take to the chair. I'll fold my legs up underneath. I, I write in the most horrific posture, curled up like a pretzel with my laptop on my knees. Isn't that terrible? Um, and I'm told I should sit at a desk and I'm told I should, you know, use all sorts of, um, 
you know, methods to correct my posture and sit with my wrists correctly, but I don't. I just tip tap away on my lap. And if a dog's sitting on me, then I lift the laptop off. And if it goes off, I put the laptop back down. And I will work until mid-morning and it flies. It feels like about half an hour, but very often it's 11 when I look up. And then that's more coffee and breakfast. Um, I'm on a health kick. I'm on a health journey. I'm always trying to eat better. I'm trying to get my weight under control. And I'm pleased to say I'm eating healthy. I find, you know, the more sort of nutrition, um, nutritionally aware I am, the better I eat, the more focused I can stay, which is, you know, obviously no, no surprise, but it is to me as I've eaten unhealthily for quite a long period of my life. Um, I go back, I, I write again. My day is always interrupted by knocks on the front door, you know, parcels being dropped off, people dropping in, someone with a question, um, telephone ringing, speaking to my family, my parents, my friends. And then I will literally just break off what I'm doing, take the call and go straight back to it. And I'm able to pick up exactly where I left off and just get back into the mindset immediately, which is, I think, you know, I think I'm quite lucky. Um, I don't really stop then. I maybe have a walk and a stretch, maybe mid-late afternoon. And if I feel like it, I might have a nap then too. I sometimes have a 20 minute nap just in the chair where I will close my eyes and I will go into the deepest sleep you can imagine. It's like I, I wake up and I feel like I've slept for eight hours. It's, it's my superpower and it kind of recharges me. And then I will break for dinner, which I will cook. Someone else will cook. We'll just grab something. We all sit in the kitchen and eat and I find out about the kids day chat to my husband no one talks about writing or my book you know we'll talk about has the dog had her anti-scratch medication you know uh has someone cleaned the bathroom uh who's going to mow the grass you know all the mundane stuff of life and I get straight back to my my writing and I'll write until about eight half eight and then I'm in bed by nine o'clock then I'm so boring I've just realized I'm the most boring person on the planet no, 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 no. Um, as I predicted, though, it is fairly relentless. Uh, you, you you sit there and you love doing it. You're cracking it out. Are there any constraints in what you're doing? Uh, is there a an aim? Is there a word limit? How Have you any idea what would make a good day of writing? I never, ever think about it, but my books are always around 120,000 words. My chapters always tend to be the same length, which is kind of strange. Um, and I probably do anything from... Gosh, I don't know. I suppose I do anything between 5,000 words a day. Sometimes I do 10. It, it varies. It just absolutely varies um, depending on you know what I'm writing. And if I find something particularly difficult or dark, um, for example, I, I, I wrote a book called uh, What Have I Done, which had some quite dark chapters in it about a, coerced, a coercive and controlled marriage. And it was quite difficult. I found I had to go slow. I had to pace myself because I found it quite tricky to write some of those scenes. Again, with a book called uh, The Idea of You, which is about a woman who has infertility struggles and it's her battle to understand and become a mother. Um, and it related so closely to my own experience that I found myself pausing quite a lot and thinking, oh, that's hit a nerve a bit. So I might have a little cry, might have a little think, you know, grab a tissue and um, blow my nose and crap back on. But other than that, I don't really... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't plan. I don't think about it. I know I have a deadline of when the book's due. Um, but, uh, other than that, I don't, um, no, I don't, I don't, I don't set a boundary or, or think about it. Is that deadline ever tricky for you? No. Uh, does, is, 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 is no. It, you're always well prepared? Always, always deliver a book a week, two weeks before the deadline. Um, and I turn it around very quickly simply because I am always, and this sounds terrible, I'm sharing it with you and everyone listening. Um, I always want to get on to the next book. I love the book I'm writing. And I, then I love the book I'm writing. And then I 
love the book I'm writing and that's how it's always been. I don't, I don't look at my reviews too much. I don't, well, I just don't, I don't, I don't worry about chart place. I don't think about any of that. I just want to get on with the next book. And uh, you know, when you're doing like a craft project, whether it's, you know, laying the decking or knitting a jumper and real life gets in the way of that project and it feels like all you want to do is get back to that. You know, like if you're reading a book on holiday and then there's someone going, can you put sun cream tap? Are you like, oh gosh, really? You know, all I want to do is read this book. That's how I feel about my, my job, about my writing, about my life. I don't want to do anything other than that. And anything else is just a real inconvenience. So the sooner I can get onto the next one, and then the next one. That's really my lifeblood. That's made my heart race just thinking about it. In your years, over 30 books writing, it doesn't seem like it's ever a stretch before and or, or that you even analyse the process too much. Have you figured out how you work best, like what you do need around you, what you do need to do to start writing? Um, I think because I grew up in a very chaotic, busy flat um, with lots of brothers, lots of people, lots of chaos, lots of noise books were the way that I escaped and so I would take a book curl up on the corner of a sofa and read and lose myself in that story and it didn't matter if my brothers were you know armpit farting on the rug whilst watching why don't you and my mum is shouting from the kitchen that dinner's nearly ready and my dad's you know taking an engine apart in the hallway it didn't matter I was lost to that book and it actually was really good training for me because now when I write, it's exactly the same. I get lost to the process. So I write on a bus, on a train, on a plane, in a waiting room, you know, in a hospital, on a sofa, in someone else's house. It doesn't matter. I open the laptop and the moment I my fingers touch the keyboard and I'm reading that text and seeing that film in my head, I'm just in it and it doesn't matter where I am. So all I actually need is my laptop and... Yeah, that's it. I can go. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Back with Amanda in just a sec. 
If you're enjoying the show, you can always support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine if you're feeling very festive. Maybe that's something you want to do. Uh, over on Patreon, uh, I just stuck up there a week or so ago, uh, the first of a book review series that I'll be doing where you can put a face to my voice if you want to do that. Uh, you can have a peek around my flat as well and even take a look at my cat, Tiggy who does not like being woken up for the video. So you can blame me for that. Just uh, taking a skim through some of the books I've read recently. Also, you get access to our writing community there. There is merch. There is even a way for your book to sponsor the show. And it just helps us carry on. If you enjoy what we do, if you've learned some tips in almost 300 episodes, it helps me keep bringing you these authors as often as I can. So to help this out please do think about getting involved, pledging for as long as you like, for as much as you like, can be tiny, it doesn't matter, everything goes such a long way, I really appreciate it. You can even pop on there for a month, see what it's all about, then duck out again. That's fine with me. Get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Amanda Prowse, chatting about her new novel, All Good Things. Now in this half, we talk about the research that she does to make the characters that live in her head that she seemingly knows everything about, be able to exist in authentic situations. Also, we run through when she realises what needs to happen in a story that she never plots, and we get back to it talking about what success looks like after 30 books. Something that she'd always dreamed of. But as someone that's been through so much, and lived quite a life, how much does success change things? When I uh, was really skint, we would say to ourselves, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have a spare bedroom? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could go to, you know, a fantastic holiday? It felt very important to me, Dan, when I didn't have anything. And it was one of my sort of mental goals, I suppose, because that is uh, how I kind of thought I'd measure my success. If I was able to buy X, if I was able to save Y, that would feel like I was, you know, uh, doing it right, I guess. Um I achieved material success. Uh, I started writing when I was 42. I'm now 55. I suppose about seven years ago was when we were able to buy a beautiful house. You know, all the trappings, spare bedrooms, library, swimming pool, you name it. It's got a lot. Fabulous. And around the same time, my son's mental health started to unravel. And I can honestly tell you that I would give away every spare bedroom, every drop of water in that pool, every square inch of that library. I'd give it all back in a heartbeat, in a blink, if it meant it brought Josh some peace. Because you're only ever as happy as your happiest kid. And when my son isn't happy, when he's struggling, it doesn't matter how many pounds you've got in the bank, none of it is relevant. Because all I want for me and for my family is peace, peace of mind and good mental health. And it's taught me a lesson. It's taught me, you know, stuff doesn't make you happy. Stuff doesn't alleviate all your problems. Your problems are just different. Am I thankful that I now no longer have to hide from the person I haven't got rent for? Yeah, of course I am. Is it nice being able to write a cheque and pay a bill? Absolutely. Have all my worries gone? No. Is my life perfect? No. It's just a different set of worries. And um, it comes with its own set of pressures, weirdly. It's, um... Now, th- obviously, this is not the book we're here to to talk about, but I know that you written a memoir kind of covering that and touching on different aspects. What was that change like to go from relentlessly writing novels and you've got these four characters in your brain to suddenly mining quite a troubling time in your family's life? 
I didn't really intend to write that nonfiction book. It's, it's called The Boy Between, and it's a book that I wrote with my son, Joshi, who suffers uh, with depression. And uh, and Joshi tried to take his life. Um, I didn't intend to write it, Dan, and I'd never thought I would write nonfiction. We kind of started by accident. I found that writing is the thing I know and it's the thing I can do. So I wrote to Josh asking him how I could help, what was going on, why wouldn't he talk to me, how do I make things better, you know, going into traditional fix-it mode as, a, as parents often do, as, as loved ones often do. And he replied with a very honest email explaining just what he was going through. And it became our language of understanding. Writing was the way that we communicated most openly, enabling us to find a path through his illness to put in place measures that would keep him safe and help me know what to do next. We didn't intend to write it, but we decided if we were going to write it, if we were going to publish, you know, he's written one chapter and I've written another and that's the way it goes. If we were going to publish it, we needed to do it warts and all, rip the bandaid off and be as honest as we could. Otherwise, there was no point. It wasn't going to do either of us justice and it wasn't going to actually help anyone reading it. So it's a difficult read, but a very hopeful read with instruction on how we got through it, still feeling our way. You know, there hasn't been a, a cork popping moment where we sail off into the sunset and Josh is, you know, cantering around a paddock with joy. It doesn't work like that. It's an ongoing struggle. But the message in the book detailing everything we've been through and how we got there is that Josh leads a really, really good life with depression. And I think that is the most valuable thing you can tell anyone and explain to anyone who is suffering or love someone who is suffering, that there is a good life to be led. And, it, you know, it's possible. Uh, now, just you know, changing tack slightly, because of what you've written about and you, you were detailing books that featured, well, that were about coercive control and, and about other other quite traumatic issues. I'm just wondering about the research that goes into your novels because you've got all of this in your head. But uh, I, I, I would imagine that you simply can't know everything about all of these things that you're writing about. How do you go about researching and looking up things that you might not be sure about, the lives of these people that you can't possibly understand fully? Well, first of all, I only write about things that I have experienced. So um, no book has been written um, where I, it's not an, a topic that has touched my life. And I'm not unique. You know, it's touched all of our lives. We've all been in relationships that you think, gosh, this is not healthy, not right. We've all had moments of self-loathing. We've all overindulged in either food or alcohol or wherever it might be. We've all had uh, addiction in our family. We've all had cancer touch our lives. So I write about what I know, but also what we all know, you know, none of us are unique. We all have these same experiences. But just to sense check and make sure that I'm getting the detail right, I usually speak to about 12 people, um, some mostly women, but also men as well, who share with me particular details. And I say, look, this is the book I've written. And before it goes off to edit, I send them copies. And they may say, for example, Another Love is a book I wrote about a woman whose life unravels um, with alcohol addiction. Um I haven't drunk since I was 28 because I know it's a, an abyss I stared into and it scared me massively. And I spoke to a lot of people who were alcoholics, functioning alcoholics, reformed alcoholics, people living with this dreadful disease. And a couple of them said to me, oh, this recovery, this, this wouldn't happen like that. 
you know, it, it's not that long or that's too short or that this drug is available to combat that. And it was like, oh, you know, thank you so much. And it's that detail I get that give authenticity and um, uh, sort of add another facet to the characters that I've created. And I find it incredibly useful. 12 is kind of my magic number. I usually speak to 12 people. I feel that gives me enough of a broad range of their experiences. And what I want from those people I talk to and that, that people are so generous with their stories, Dan, they speak so freely about their experiences. And what I want to know from them is the emotion. How did it feel? Because I can't know how it feels. You know, how did your family feel? How did they react? What did their face look like? You know, what were your hands doing when they were telling you that? Did you cry? You know, when did you forget it? Did you sleep that night? All that kind of detail that I that I put into the book based on their 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 stories. And it just adds another element of truth to, the, to what I'm writing about. So I write about a year, year and a half ahead. So all good things I would have thought about, oh, probably 18 months ago, two years ago. Um, and I was in a period of deep grief just coming out of a period of deep grief. My brother died very suddenly and it totally has you know, changed so much for me. Um, and I remember thinking about how lucky other people were who weren't going through what I was going through. And of course, everyone does. I think I was just feeling a bit sorry for myself. But I remember thinking, I just oh, look at look, you know, look at that, that person so happy. How dare they laugh? They're laughing while I'm feeling broken inside. Look, they're, they're talking, they're laughing, they're chatting, they're sharing jokes, they're dancing, they're singing. You know, how can that be when the whole world, the sky has fallen in? And it made me realise that you never actually know what's going on behind closed doors, which, which actually is a theme behind lots of my books. But also that sometimes the desire we have to be like other people, you know, I'm sure people will look at my life. It's what we touched on earlier and say, my gosh, she's so lucky. And yet they don't know how I feel. They don't know about my ridiculous shyness, which if you met me, you would think I was the most confident person on the planet, beaming, smiling, positive. And yet inside, I feel extremely shy and nervous most of the time. I mask it very well. You never quite know. And I just had this idea of this family living next door to another family. You know, that family on the street, the perfect one who had the shiny cars, the great holidays, the good teeth, uh, you know, the great hair. And you think, wow, wouldn't it be great to be part of that family? So I've told these two families stories. They live next door to each other. And each chapter is told by a different character in the family. And it slowly peels a layer of the onion until we get to see the true heart of both those families. And I think it's fair to say that on both sides, nothing is quite what they seem. In fact, one of the sort of teaser trailers I've seen, it says uh, the truth, uh, the story is revealed one truth at a time. And I kind of like that because it's usually one lie at a time, isn't it? But, but it's one truth at a time. And it's how, you know, it, it, I mean, I think, it's quite common, Dan, for us all to compare because we think the grass is greener, but you just never know. So this is all in your head as you start writing. There is no plan that exists in any form outside of the one in your head. How do you know, this is quite a vague question and a simple one, but how do you know when things in the plot that you've almost got all of are actually happening on, on the page? How have you figured out when you need to sow certain seeds and drip feed this and drip feed this and hit plot points? Because as I'm writing, so for example, I wrote a trilogy called Anna, Theo and Kitty, which is three books. It's actually a love story uh, between these three people, but told it's the span of their lifetimes. So what I had to do was keep their lives in my head at the forefront of my head. So when, for example, one character, Kitty, had gone off home because something traumatic had happened to her family in Scotland. I thought, oh, yes, so at this moment, Theo's on a playing field playing rugby. What's Anna doing? Oh, Anna's at school. So if I put in that Anna 
is at school and, th- and I'm able to see in my head and tie it together to make sure I drop in things that I know will recur or, or themes that will, will be relevant later on. I just see it. It's like, a, it's like I'm sitting at a table, an invisible person, and it's all going on around me. So I'm able to draw on those little details that tie it all together. Wow, it's really, it's really just like that. So I guess if the, if the, if the plot is pretty much sewn up, onto the actual words then and the writing, how much as an author do you think about the word that is coming out? next i don't because i i don't Dan, because i for me every book uh, all my books are written slightly differently not maybe in tone and style but the language is very different because it's the main character speaking so because i know them so well it's like well you know i mean how do, how does one of how do one of your parents speak how does your grandparents speak how does your best friend speak how does your colleague speak you just hear their voice don't you and the things they say their expressions their tone their quirks their speech impediment their accent it's just all there so i'm just as though i'm writing what they would say so for me it's very obvious because i can hear them and i write it and i can see them and i write it so i don't think about the words and every character will have a slightly different tone it's not like i'm i'm writing words i'm writing their conversations and and i have to do it transcribe them you know verbatim because that's what they're saying has this all come from you just reading a lot reading a lot a lot a lot when you were young and on and onwards so you've just gathered this by osmosis i've always been able to do it i've always had it in my head so i would for example i would read a chapter of say i don't know um let's say black beauty and I would go to bed that night and my mum would say like, no more reading. She got to school tomorrow. Plus I'm sharing a room with, you know, 1700 people. So you've got to turn the lights off and go to sleep. So I would close my eyes and I'd think, right, okay, well, where did I leave? Left Black Beauty in a stable. Oh my gosh. Someone's come along with a torch and they're on his back. <gasps> and, and now you know they're cantering over a field and gosh, what's happening? Oh my God, there's something's happening over there. And, and I would create the next chapter and the next chapter and the next in my head when I'd close the book. So I've always done it. I would do it for books I was reading that I wasn't allowed to read because it was, you know, bedtime or school time, irritatingly school time, which got in the way of my reading. Um, so I've always done it. And this is no different, really. How tidy is your first draft then? Pretty, pretty spot on. Um, yeah, I, I, I write about 110,000 words first draft. Uh, the first time I read anything back is that when I finish the book and then I will print a copy and have a look through and go through it and go, oh gosh, you know, I've, I've misspelt Sophia or I'm really terrible with numbers, really, really bad. So very often it'll be that she was born in 1970 and then suddenly she's 84 and it's like, no, Mandy, it doesn't work like that. So I have to sense check all my numbers because I'm hopeless with anything numeric. I mean, literally even page numbers I struggle with. Chapters go from one to 14 because I've forgotten to put the others in, all that kind of thing. So anything with a number in is absolutely hopeless, but pretty much that's it. Um, I print it off. I look through. I send it off to two different editors, one in the States and one in uh, London. They then read the first draft through. They collate their notes. They send it back. I will. They'll say, oh, we feel that this needs to be a bit pacier or this character has too much speech or you focused on this, which isn't uh, essential to the plot. It's a little cul-de-sac. And I say, but I like it. And they say, yes, but it's not doesn't give momentum. So can you cut that? And I'll go, yeah, that's fine. And then I do that, produce a second version. And that's pretty much it. Is that rankling for you, someone that is, is quite um, sure in how you write and what you write and you know these characters better than anyone else? How do you feel when you're told to chop and change? The first book I wrote, it was probably put your head under a duvet and cry for an hour. 
because, oh my gosh, what do they mean? What do they mean that's a slow patch? What do they mean that this character doesn't quite... I found it very difficult to take criticism as I saw it. And then I realised after about book maybe four or five that everybody I'm working with is on my side. Everybody. We are all part of a team. All I do is write. The editors are brilliant editors. You know, everyone has a, has a part that they play to make it the best it possibly can be. And if I'm not going to listen to their wisdom and their feedback, then what's the point? You know, I'm just in an echo chamber of my own ego. That's pointless. So now I very much take on board. And I would say that I act on 98% of what the editors suggest every time, always. And we've got much blunter at speaking to each other. So that at first they might say, oh, Amanda, would you consider now it's like, get rid of this? You know, it's like, oh, okay, because it saves time, actually. Um, and I'm good at it now. I'm very good at taking that because I understand the process more. But when I first started, it was a bit like getting your homework marked and getting a B instead of an A. You're thinking, God, I'm sure it was an A and I've got a B. This is terrible. But um, not anymore. I, I really welcome that, their, 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 their commentary and I welcome their input. And it makes my books much, much better. It definitely does. I look at the books, you know, pre their suggestions and they've got this unique helicopter view. It's the first time it's been read and they see things that uh, I didn't see. It's brilliant. Wonderful. I love it. There's just one last question about your characters. So often I'll speak to authors who think they've got the plot absolutely nailed only to find their characters do not want to do what they had planned. How often do you find that happens to you? And never. That doesn't happen because I already know what's exactly what they're going to say, how they're going to sit, what they're going to do, where they're going to move, how they're going to respond, whether they sleep, whether they say yes or no. I know it in advance. So that never happens to me. And thank you so much to Amanda Prowse for coming on the show. The new book is All Good Things and you can pick up a copy right now. Uh, next week we are back with our last episode of the year. So you'll get one on the... What are we talking? The 22nd of December, if I've done my maths right. You'll get one then, and then uh, I'll, have a, I'll have a week off, if that's all right, in the little Christmas gappy bit, and then I'll be back in the new year. Uh, make sure you follow us and subscribe wherever you get your shows, then it'll automatically pop up in your feed for 2024. How shocking is that? Uh, you can support us as well, patreon.com forward slash writers routine, and get 10% off the fantastic software Plotter while you can for the rest of this year at go.plotter.com slash routine. And I will see you next week with a brand new guest on the show. Until then, bye. <laughs>